Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to take a look at the new 2023 edition of the Tome of Beasts 1, just released by Kobold Press. We're going to talk about Tales of the Valiant finishing their Kickstarter, the Gloomhaven RPG backer kit crowdfunding campaign that's not really a Kickstarter. We're going to talk about Foundry's new RPG called Crucible, a look at the 1D&D virtual tabletop beta experience, and we're going to talk a little bit what that means for us. And we're going to talk about where to find some communities. Where do we where do we find some good RPG communities in a post-Twitter, post-Reddit way? And we're going to cover questions from the June 2023 Patreon Q&A all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things and RPGs. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. If you like shows like this and you want to help support me, you can do so by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to Uncovered Secrets, Volume 1 and 2 to help you run your 5e RPGs. You get the City of Arches sourcebook. You get the a whole bunch of exclusive adventures, access to the monthly Q&A, dedicated Discord server, or a whole bunch more. You can find a link to become a patron in the show notes and to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for your support. On top of running a great big Kickstarter for Tales of the Valiant, Cobalt Press was already working on a new release of the original Tome of Beasts book. Cobalt Press, some of their most popular products include their four monster books, Tome of Beasts 1, Tome of Beasts 2, Tome of Beasts 3, and the Creature Codex. So the original Tome of Beasts came out seven years ago in not quite the exact early days of 5e, but pretty early on in the, in the days of 5e. And Cobalt Press felt like it was probably worthwhile going back to those original monsters monsters and updating them, cleaning them up, adding the errata, and adding some new designs that we are seeing in more recent monsters that are written for 5th edition. Apparently, this was already underway when they were already thinking about Tales of the Valiant. So they went forward with both. So we have the Tome of Beasts 1. It wasn't a Kickstarter or anything. It just came out on the Cobalt Press website. And when I saw that they were doing it, I, of course, jumped right in and ordered a copy. I ordered a hardcover copy and then bought the PDF later. That was a mistake turns out that you're better off buying both together because you get them both cheap. But I think there was some kind of deal because I had bought the previous one. I got a coupon that let me buy the new one, $10 off, but then it turned out to be $30 to the PDF when it would have been $10 I bought in. Anyway, whatever. So I, I, I got a new copy of the Toma Beast one. And the big question you're asking is, should I buy it? And I have good answers for you. If you don't have the Toma Beast one, I would buy it. I think it's an outstanding monster book. It's a really, really good monster book, really cool monster concepts, things that you're not going to find in any of your other Wizards of the Coast publications. You're going to be able to find in here everything from really small creatures to great big demon princes. Excellent, excellent book. If you already have the Tome of Beasts one, the original one from back in 2016, you probably don't need to pick this one up. They did update a lot of monsters. They did add 11 new monsters to it. It has got new art for some things, but not new art for everything because that would obviously be pretty crazy but if you already have the original tome of beast one and you're on the fence about it then i i would probably hold off it's easy enough i think to update the monsters yourself doing just little bits of math if you want to add stuff if you're like well my i wish my spellcasters had more direct spell blasty type things rather than having to me monkey around with spells there are already easy ways for you to kind of add that stuff yourself so if you are comfortable modifying your existing monsters in order to kind of tweak things and get things where you want you really don't need the tome of beast one if you're a big collector though and you're and like again if you're on the fence the answer is probably no if you're not on the fence if you're like no i really want it well then go ahead and buy it Right. And I did like I have the original Tome of Beast one. And now I think I bought Tome of Beast one two or three times. I have the hardcover version. I have the paperback version and I have the PDF. 
I don't think I bought it as in part of any bundles, but that wouldn't surprise me either. So, and then I bought this one and now I have the hard, I will get the hardcover version of this and the PDF of this as well. So I have like five versions of Tome of Beast 1. I got a lot of versions of Tome of Beast 1. But I'm, a, you know, I, I have the income to spend on this kind of stuff. I love this sort of thing. And of course I get to bring it to you and say, oh yeah, I've looked at it. Now I did, when I went through here, I actually immediately found monsters that were directly useful in the game that I was running, including a monster that was not published in a previous one. And that one is the Dune Mimic. So I thought we would take a look at the Dune Mimic because it, it's kind of a fun, it's kind of a fun creature. Mimic. Mimic, comma, Dune. So here's an example of like a monster that they added. I went and checked and I did not see the Dune Mimic inside of the original Tome of Beast 1. And it was a really fun, big set piece fight. Like a great, you know, they were going through the deserts. All of a sudden they saw storms on the horizon. They saw the ground undulating underneath them. And then all of a sudden these tentacles burst on and started grabbing them. And they said, holy cow, it's a Dune Mimic. And one of the players said, my mother was killed by a Dune Mimic. And that became a whole part of the story. So really, really kind of fun monsters. Some of the design things that you'll see, some of the designs are simpler. They've, they've gone back and simplified some things. They still definitely have the cobalt press little sharp teeth that they describe that cobalt press monsters just bite a little bit harder. They're just a little bit more dangerous. And definitely my players and all the groups that I've run where I run cobalt press monsters go, Oh no, it's a cobalt press monster. This is going to be really hard. And it's because they definitely hit at their challenge rating. In some cases, even a little bit harder than their challenge rating. I guess there's one of the NPCs we could look at. So some of the examples, like if you want to, if you want to see what some of the modern design ideas are, a lot of times it's taking spellcasting monsters and putting either spell-like effects into their stat block or putting the direct spells into their stat block. Global Press has gone towards the spell-like effects. So an example is like the Dwarven Ring Mage, which is a relatively powerful CR7 mage and you can see like has a ring staff when it attacks a dwarven mage can use ring magic it then makes three ring staff attacks and can replace one attack with the use of spell casting so it can actually use ring magic a staff attack and spell casting all at once and it has like these rings of binding dc 15 it describes everything in the stat block that you need in order for the monster to act at its challenge rating this one's kind of interesting because it says like it can replace one attack with the use of spell casting so then you're like well which one of these spells is it going to do i guess it could it could do that but generally you expect that it's going to attack with its staff, which is a good 15 damage per hit, plus use one of the rings from its ring magic ability. So a lot of the design, and I remember that when Wizards of the Coast talked about this new design for Monsters of the Multiverse, they were saying like the monster in the stuff it has in its stat block will act at its challenge rating. So you definitely see stuff like that. But how many of these sorts of creatures do you find where they have sort of the spells put in and is it worth buying a whole book just to get the ones that that do that's a good question here's another example of like the Elm emerald order cult leader is pretty pretty good size cr8 multi-attack makes three mace or radiant bolt attacks and this radiant bolt is plus eight to hit and 18 radiant damage each that's an example of where it has a spell like ability thrown right in that immediately makes it hit at its challenge rating without having to do any of its other spell casting stuff so i definitely think that that's kind of a useful thing but how hard is it to sort of add your own radiant bolts if you have like an old monster that doesn't have something like this i don't think it's really that hard to add on your own ranged attack again you can use books like the forge of foes or the tables that we have from forge of foes that are available at everybody to quickly add a spell like ability to a monster like this without having to buy a whole book so is it worth buying the the toma beasts 1 2023 edition is absolutely worth buying if you do not have the toma beasts if you don't if you already have tome of beasts it's really a matter of how much do you use it? Do you use it a whole lot? And if you use it a whole lot and you feel like, yeah, 
paying the money for a book like this, you're going to be able to bring it to your table and use it a lot, then it might be worth picking up. If you're on the fence about it, if you're like, well, I don't know if I should pick it up or not, then the answer is probably no. The answer is you're probably good with everything you already have in the Tome of Beasts and just getting the modifications plus a few of the new monsters. It's probably not worth paying the 70 bucks that it costs to get the hardcover edition plus the PDF together. The PDF itself is 30 bucks. The pocket edition is also 30 bucks. I think that's a little interesting that the physical pocket edition is the same price as the PDF. Probably your best value is getting the pocket edition with the PDF. That's 40 bucks and gets you the PDF plus a pocket edition. I think certainly if you were going to buy the PDF, I don't see a reason not to spend an extra 10 bucks and get the pocket edition. That is certainly what I would do. And probably what I should have done. I got the hardcover. I probably could have gotten the pocket edition and been and been just fine. But that seems, if you want the sweet spot, that's probably the sweet spot. 40 bucks for the pocket edition plus the PDF. If you don't have the pocket edition of Tome of Beast 1 and you wanted the pocket edition of Tome of Beast 1, this would be a better way to go and you get all the updated monsters and stuff like that. So pretty cool. I'm glad they did it. I think it's a neat a neat addition. It's kind of a niche product because you probably don't need it that much if you have Tome of Beast 1, but it's also a lot of cool designs and a lot of way to go. I'll offer one tip, one thing that I think is really useful for using books like this, which is when you get a new monster book and you're thinking about using it for a particular adventure, instead of worrying about trying to make sure you're using monsters from all of the different monster books that you have, Instead, make like use that one book and make like the whole adventure theme fit around the monsters that are in that book. In other words, you really only need to use that one book and go through that book and pick out the monsters of that one book that you think are going to work well in the adventure you're going to run. And that way you don't have to like go through 15 other books and figure it all out. It's a real chore. Instead, you could just be like, I'm going to work with Tome of Beast 1 and I use monsters from Tome of Beast 1. And there's like 300 some monsters in there. So there's a whole lot of monsters that you can use to kind of enrich your game. Many cases, they'll fit the same sort of themes and ideas that you might have for your adventure, only they're entirely new monsters. So that's a fun way that I like to use it. So I'm, I'm coming up with an adventure and I think, oh, for this adventure, I bet it would be really cool if I use monsters from this one book. Just use that one book and it makes it really easy to go. It's something, something that I really like to do. In other Cobalt Press news, Tales of the Valiant, the Cobalt Press version of 5th edition, their, their own 5th edition core book series, which includes a player's book and a monster book, the Monster Vault, has finished. It finished last week. It finished with more than 10,000 backers and $1.1 million in, in total amount of money that came in. Now, obviously, that's not like all the money that they make because it cost them money to make the books. So pretty exciting Kickstarter. Really neat to see how popular this was. I'm obviously very excited for the books themselves. Now, disclaimer, I was paid by Kobold Press to write a part of this. I actually wrote the encounter building guidelines that are going to be inside the Monster Vault. I'm very excited for that. I'm hoping those comes out, comes out in a playtest soon. And so obviously I am biased towards Tales of the Valiant, but I'm really excited for it. The reason why I wrote the encounter building guidelines is because I was excited for Tales of the Valiant. So, you know, how biased was I when I really love their work? And obviously I love their work. I love Tome of Beasts. So very exciting to see Tales of the Valiant come out with such, such popularity. And I'm excited for the books to come out themselves. In other crowdfunding news, we see that the Gloomhaven RPG is now available in, in, in on Backerkit. They decided not to use Kickstarter to do their project. And with only a couple of days in, they've hit $2.2 million, nine. 1,700 backers for this. And this is a mixture of a new version of the Gloomhaven board game, the Gloomhaven official role-playing game, and piles and piles and piles of miniatures. Tons of miniatures that are available in here. $325 for 603 miniatures. So if you are a miniatures collector and you needed 600 new miniatures, you know, this is a pretty good deal. About 50 cents a mini is a good 
good price for miniatures. These are unpainted miniatures, but I've seen the quality of Gloomhaven miniatures before. They are very good quality, very good quality sculpts. And it's a good, it's a, it's a good Kickstarter if you were in, into getting big piles of miniatures. I don't really know anything about the Gloomhaven RPG itself, so it's hard to say. And it's, it's interesting because you're like, the Gloomhaven board game is very RPG-like. And one thing they talk about with the Gloomhaven RPG is that it's got a core book for running your own sort of fantasy adventures, but it still uses like the character boxes and the cards that you use for the Gloomhaven board game. Sim- similar, anyway, not exactly the same, but similar cards that you would use for the Gloomhaven board game. So I think it's definitely going to still have that focus on like hexagonal tactical play only you have your own role-playing game that's built on top of it so that's pretty neat and it's really interesting to see a non-kickstarter project that is that is this big it's also interesting like you got to ask and at least i'm asking this isn't really relevant to the products themselves but how much money did they leave on the table by using backer kit instead of kickstarter i'm not really sure but having looked at their previous kickstarters the previous kickstarters were enormous kickstarters and they pulled in tens of millions of dollars so yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to see them decide to switch to backer kit. Maybe this brings backer kit really onto the map as far as a big platform for doing an entire crowdfunding campaign. Really interesting to see. Anyway, if you want to know more about the Gloomhaven Kickstarter, the Gloomhaven crowdfunded backer kit, you can find a link down in the show notes below. So one of the interesting things about the Gloomhaven RPG is that the the backer kit itself, the the the, the crowdfunding campaign is all physical. I think there's like PDFs available, but there's no talk at all about digital tools for this. And we know like there is a Gloomhaven video game, Gloomhaven RPG computer game that you can get as part of Steam and play Gloomhaven that way. And when you're thinking about like buying 600 miniatures for 300 bucks, that is obviously only for in-person play. You're not really going to use these miniatures in any kind of online play. There's ways to do it, but it's really weird and clunky and nobody really bothers to do it. And certainly not worth 600, 600 bucks to do it. Six hundred dollars, yeah, six hundred. No, three hundred dollars. It's certainly not worth three hundred dollars in order to buy a bunch of miniatures that you're going to somehow use in online play. And so, when they make a project like this, my my loose statistics of the the players and the DMs that I have pulled tells me that roughly this is a rough you know rough estimate, but it's backed from thousands of people, the hundreds of people that I've talked to, not thousands, maybe a thousand people, but hundreds of people that about half are playing online and half are playing in person. There's then there's a group in the middle that's playing in both, but a lot of people are playing in both. So when you put out a product like this, this is really only serving half. You've already cut your audience in half because half of them are only playing online and Gloomhaven definitely is played online. Like you can play the Gloomhaven board game online using their, their online version as, as sort of the other side of this is foundry has created a new role-playing game called crucible they're working on it i don't know if it's i think it's out i think you can buy it already and crucible is a role-playing game developed for foundry by foundry to be operated on foundry and the idea here is to have an entire game system it's a classless game system that's wired around the the foundry virtual tabletop itself and this hasn't this isn't the first time that a virtual tabletop has done something like this roll 20 actually commissioned or had built a role-playing game called burn bright burn bright which is developed by my friend james intercasso really cool like space-based you know high like fantasy space fantasy game that's built around roll 20 you can find a link down to both of these in the show notes below i really don't feel like roll 20 did a great job marketing this they sort of brought it out they they worked on it really hard 
And then we never really heard much about it after that. And it's kind of interesting that Roll20 themselves sort of said, well, we're still going to continue to focus on our selling products for other third parties. You never really hear about Burnbright. It's available and it's out there. And they got reviews and people really liked it and you could pick it up. But you've never really heard much more about it. And I don't know if that's going to be the case with, with Crucible as well for Foundry. But obviously, it seems to make sense that if you're a virtual tabletop, it makes sense to have your own home style, your home RPG that is dedicated around the platform that you operate that works perfectly well with the tool that you have developed. And so it'll be interesting to see how Crucible does. Is it popular? Do people like it? Do people really enjoy it and how that plays out? I have not tried it. I have seen people talk about having used it that you can actually pick it up and and try it out. And but I haven't really gotten any feedback on how good or bad a role-playing game it is. So that's that's pretty interesting. But that whole question of physical role-playing games and digital role-playing games and what happens when you're kind of focused on one or the other is a big topic that's going on these days. And actually a third piece of this of this puzzle is, of course, the one D&D virtual tabletop that came out. Daniel Kwan, a writer about all things in role-playing games, a very big proponent in the social media sphere talking about role-playing games, and a fellow digital summit attendee to the D&D summit that happened earlier, wrote up his experiences playing with the one D&D virtual, ta- virtual tabletop beta experience. And he has a really good write-up about what he noticed when he was playing this whole thing. So if you are interested to hear more, definitely sign up for his newsletter. How do I continue reading? Talks all about what playing in the early version of the VTT was like, but the kind of stuff that he saw, the kind of stuff that he liked, the the feedback that he offered in general, really interesting stuff. So if you want to hear more about somebody hands-on using the virtual tabletop, you can read Daniel's experiences here. The big questions that I have about it is like when when I look at where it is today, and when I was reading this, the thing I was particularly interested in looking at was anything that we would see in here who that gives us an idea about sort of the impact and the direction that the VTT is going to have for the RPG community overall, certainly for the fifth edition RPG community, and obviously for D&D, which is all these different things. Like, wh- how does it matter for the people that are playing D&D? How does it matter for the people that are playing fifth edition, which now has things like Tales of Valent and everything else? And then what kind of impact is it going to have on the role-playing game experience overall? And one thing that was pretty clear is like, it is still really early to say. Like, this is a an alpha. It's a It was a private, you know, a private invitation to try out the earliest version of this. As far as we know, like, it's going to be at least mid to late next year before we actually see something in play that we can actually start using overall. So we still have a good ways to go before we really know what this is going to do and what kind of impact it has. And that's when I think about DMs, and actually one of our patron questions today asks this very question, and I'm going to answer it a little bit now and then a little bit when we talk about the question, which is like, how worried should you be? And the answer is, if you're worried about this, if the if the emotion that you feel about this is one of worry, I would not worry about it. I would recognize, you know, remember the fact that this isn't going to eat your lunch, that this isn't going to, the only impact that this can really have to the hobby is if you are, if you're drawn to it yourself. If you don't want to use it, you don't ever have to use it. And there are so many role-playing games that are out there that aren't going to use virtual tabletops at all. You don't need to worry about them. So I'm not worried about about the, the one D&D virtual tabletop. I'm not worried about what it's going to do to D&D. I'm not worried about what it's going to do for 5th edition. And I'm not worried about what it's going to do to the role-playing game hobby overall. If it's really good, then it's really good. And then we're going to want to use it. If it's not good, then we're not. But if you think about it, in the same way I was talking about how Gloomhaven's 
role-playing game and the crowdfunding campaign they're running for it is based on in-person play. And that immediately cuts off half of the people that are playing role-playing games overall who are playing virtually. In the same way, the virtual tabletop that D&D is developing is really going to be focusing on just those that are playing online. If you are playing in person, it's unlikely you're going to use it. Yes, I know there are some people who have big TVs and they like to use virtual tabletops in their physical environment, and maybe some people will do this. I expect that that's actually very few people, and more people are going to play with just the physical tools they have in front of them. They're not likely to want to use this virtual tabletop when you're playing in person it's almost going to be built exclusively for playing online and if we want to be worried about something let's be worried about dnd beyond i've talked about it before but like we don't have to worry about things that may or may not happen in the future there are things we can worry about today now dnd beyond is a different kind of tool because dnd beyond definitely is usable in both in-person and online play again in my own surveys and polls about half of the people that were playing dnd were using the D- we're using dnd beyond to do character stuff in my own groups it's far greater than half most of the players that i've got are definitely using dnd beyond and prefer many prefer to use D&D Beyond. They like that it does all the auto calculation. They like that all the data is there that they want. They they like the interface. They use everything. So it's a good tool for them. But it is a limiting tool because it only focuses on the information that Wizards of the Coast publishes. And it focuses on all of the information. Again, back in the Discord server, on the Slyflourish Discord server, we were talking more about house rules and things like that over the past few days. And Silvery Barbs kept coming up. And people would say, like, we need to nerf Silvery Barbs, or I really want to nerf Silvery Barbs. And I'm like, why? It's, it's I don't even allow it on my table it's in one book and they're like yeah but it's on D&D Beyond which means everybody can use it and that's the problem it's like you can't limit your sources and say guess what stuff from Strixhaven we're not using any of the other we're not using the backgrounds from Strixhaven nobody else is talking about the other spells from Strixhaven why is Silvery Barbs keep coming up it's just a spell in one book and that the reason why is the way D&D Beyond is built is if you own the material everybody gets access to it no there is not a way to limit and yes I know you're gonna oh yeah there's that tool in D&D Beyond where you can select what sources the players can see that only limits the source books they can see all of the powers are still available to their characters and they don't even know what source it came from there is no way trust me and don't don't tell me about the switch that's inside the thing that says you can limit the source because it does not work for this trust me i've looked that when you are using dnd beyond you cannot limit the sources that are available to the character builder if you own it and if you're sharing your other stuff with your players they're going to get access to everything which means if you have strixhaven or they have strixhaven they will always see silvery silvery barbs as one of the spells that they're using that is a problem that we have today we don't need to worry about what the virtual tabletop is going to do because we have problems today and what are we doing about those what am i doing is i'm i'm supporting open 5e a lot open 5e.com is a website where a lot of ogl material is being put into a structured format so that other tools can use them i would really love to see uh, more character builders. I want to see competitive character builders that are out there. I want to see lots of different character builders. I would really, if anybody from Roll20 is listening and anybody from Foundry and anyone from Fantasy Grounds, if any of you are listening, I think it would be outstanding to see Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds and Foundry put out character builders and digital character sheets that are separate from all of the rest of the tools that you have. I would love to be able to go into Roll20 and do use the character mancer without having to go into a game. If I could build the character mancer, then I can buy all those third-party assets, I can buy all that material, and I can build characters with them in the Roll20 platform without having to go to a Roll20 game, because I don't need the rest of the VTT, I just want the character builder. Foundry could do the same thing, Fantasy Grounds could do the same thing, and any other third party could do the same thing. Anybody else that wants to build a front-end character builder we i have worked hard a lot of people over at open 5e have worked hard to make lots of the information available for many different 5e publishers to help build things like character builders 
I want to see competitive character builders. That's probably my, when it comes to the digital space of 5e, I think we need more competitive character builders. We really don't have enough of them. They really don't have enough information in them. And I think there is a really good opening for a way for somebody could, to make, and maybe it's Nexus, right? Maybe, maybe Nexus is going to build a character builder this way, but build a character builder that's as good and as competitive as the D&D Beyond character builder, but include lots of third-party resources that D&D Beyond doesn't include. That would be an outstanding way. Anyway, if you want to check out Daniel Kwan's experiences running the virtual tabletop, definitely check that out in the show notes below. It's really cool. And if you're worried about the VTT and what kind of impact it's going to have to the to D&D 5th edition and the role-playing game, the role-playing game hobby, my big question, my big thing is don't worry. Don't worry about it. It's it's a year and a half away. It's probably not going to be, I don't think it's really going to be that huge. The, the question I would ask is how much has Roll20 hurt the marketplace? How much has Roll20 hurt RPGs? Because Roll20 is extremely popular, really, really popular. And I wouldn't say that it has hurt the TTRPG industry. Now, there is a thing about like, if you go to like the Adventurers League to, to play an online game, almost all of those are running in Roll20. Will that change? It might. Is that a problem? I don't think it's really that big a problem. But like you can tell that there is one virtual tabletop who has dominated the virtual tabletop space for a long time, and that's Roll20. Has that really been a problem? I wouldn't say that that's really been a problem to the industry. And I think at best, the new D&D virtual tabletop, it's not going to destroy Roll20. It's not going to destroy Foundry or Fantasy Grounds because people have already got all the material in there. So I wouldn't worry about that. And it's not going to have, it's not going to affect your online, your, your home game at all. And if you don't use other tools, it's just a virtual tabletop. That's all it is. So no, I don't think we need to worry about it. So this past week, I published a video about the enshittification of Reddit and what that means for the D&D communities that exist on Reddit. I only talked about a little bit in the video was like, well, where else can you go? Where else can you find these communities? And that's something that I'm paying more attention to as I have stepped away from Reddit. I've stepped away from Twitter and I'm looking at like, where are the RPG communities that I want to spend time in, where I want to read new information, read new news, learn from other GMs, learn about like what's going on in the industry, hear about these industry trends. Where, where do I go and where, what am I paying attention to? And I've actually really enjoyed this process. It's been fun to kind of think about it. And one of the big reasons I've enjoyed it is because a lot of it is going back to the way that I used to interact with the web many years ago. And the big one is like blogs and RSS feeds. And I was like, I love RSS feeds and I love blogs. And ever since Google Reader kind of died, talk about the enshittification of another platform, is that Google's like, yeah, we know everybody uses this, but we don't want to maintain it anymore. So we're going to stop using it. And it just died. And it like getting rid of Google Reader hurt everybody. And Google Plus, I hear all the time about how Google Plus failed and that that was another example of why it fell apart. I am using a tool called Feedly which is a pretty popular one and to do RSS reading. But the nice thing about RSS feeds is you can use many different tools and there will always be tools out there that are available for you to subscribe to RSS feeds from blogs and get basically a news page of new posts to blogs. So one of the things that I've been, that I did, I talked to MT Black. I know MT Black, fellow creator in the RPG space, big designer on DMs Guild, wrote the Iskandar books. MT Black's newsletter is a fantastic newsletter where he says, here are 10 interesting articles that he picked out this week and saw this week. And I was like, so I know that dude's got a good blog role. So I asked him like, hey, what are the blogs you subscribe to? And can you send me your blog role? What is a blog role? A blog role, 
which is also in the nerd space, is known as an OPML file, is essentially a list of all of the blogs that you follow in an RSS reader. And it's structured in a way that you can import it into an RSS reader and it's auto-subscribed to all of them. So I got his and I was like, oh, these are outstanding. And I, I mashed them together with my own. And then I said like, hey, can I share your blog role with my blog role to other people? And he's like, yeah, absolutely. Like then share this with everybody that you want. So I created a little website, a little a little thing called the Sly Flourish blog, blog role. It's available on slyflourish.com and I will link to it so you can find it in the show notes. And it is a link to all of the RPG blogs that I am currently subscribed to, which is just shy of 100 because Feedly has a limit of 100 if you're not a paid subscriber and I'm not a, I'm not a paid subscriber. And it shows all of the blogs of all of the different groups that I am currently paying attention to. And it's all RPG focused and I have it on a website so you can read them and you can actually click on them and say like, I want to see the actual blog that's going on. You know, D&D Duet, fantastic blog. Love D&D Duet, right? And you can go and read their blog. And then it also has the RSS feed. So if you want to subscribe to the RSS feed individually, you have it here. But then I'm also linking to the OPML version of this. The OPML version, look, look at that. That's really usable. But the OPML version is what you can import directly into Feedly and auto-subscribe to every one of these blogs. So if you want to try out Feedly, I have a link to Feedly here. You can link to Feedly, create an account. You can add the blog role and suddenly you're subscribed to all of these blogs. One reason why this is really cool is there's no company that's sitting between you and this stuff that unlike Facebook or Twitter or Reddit or any of the other services that you have, it is a direct connection between you and that blog. Yes, you're using software like Feedly to connect you, but you could replace Feedly with many other RSS readers that are out there. It's actually not hard to write an RSS reader if you write your own code. I could definitely write my own RSS reader in probably a little while, but it's a great way to do it. So this is an entire blog role you can subscribe to in whatever RSS reader you want, and then you are getting direct access to the thoughts and ideas of you know, slightly less than a hundred other GMs to draw that information in. So that's one example of a way that we can connect with the community in a non-inshittified way. Another one, a couple other ones are Mastodon. I subscribed to Mastodon. The thing about, what, so what's Mastodon, right? I'm not going to get into Mastodon. You can go Google it and you go read about Mastodon. But Mastodon is essentially a decentralized Twitter platform. The idea is that anybody can sort of set up their own Mastodon server. Anybody with like, a you know, that wants to go through all the engineering, can set up their own Mastodon server. That Mastodon server can connect to people on other Mastodon servers. So it's sort of like email. It's the idea that your email server is not the same as everyone else's email server. And yet email can still go back and forth, which means even though I am on the Mastodon server of chirp.nworld.org, I can connect to all of the other RPG people who are available on DiceCamp. DiceCamp is another popular Mastodon server. DiceCamp is run by Sage Latora, who is one of the writers of Dungeon World. And chirp.nworld.org is run by Nworld. So I know who's running these services. Instead of me going to some giant faceless mega corporation who's getting ready to sell their thing and increase shareholder value and bring in advertisers, I can actually email the people that are in charge of these and say, hey, thanks for doing the thing that you're doing. There are also great big Mastodon servers. One's called Mastodon.social. Mastodon.social is a huge Mastodon server that lots of people operate on. It's also a, 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 like a public a company that's set up for a public good. It's a nonprofit company. So it's not likely to become completely inshittified, but it's a good one too. Then there are all the, there's a couple people brought up the idea that there's a new thing called Lemmy. Uh, not new, I've, probably Lemmy has been around, but Lemmy is essentially a decentralized version of what Reddit does. It's a link sharing platform that's built on decentralized platforms and people can set them up. And one that I became aware of and interested in 
interested in is the ttrpg.network ttrpg network if you're used to reddit you'll look at it and say oh this looks familiar it's got upvoting it's got links it's got lots of different things that are going on here that look a lot like reddit however it is hosted by the admins that previously were the moderators of the dm academy and dnd next so the people that were running the dnd next and dm academy subreddits said they're not happy where Reddit is going and they want to set up their own and have this official platform. The neat thing about, so this is all built on software called Lemmy, but the neat thing about this is you can also subscribe to other communities on other Lemmy servers. So if other Lemmy servers have role-playing game communities that you're interested in, you can subscribe to those and you will see them in your feed list here, which is really pretty neat. So TGRPG Network is the one that I have joined now, but there are other ones out there as well. And this is very early on too. It's really just starting up. So I, I'm, you know, I think it's great. I'm very excited about it, but it's still early on to see if it's going to catch on and, and be a thing now. So that's kind of a new one. But then, of course, then we can go back to one that's been around for like 20 years, and that's N-World itself. If you're not familiar with N-World, very popular community website and a news website for all things that are going on in role-playing games. They've been running forever. Morris from N-World has been in this industry forever. They are the publisher behind Level Up Advanced 5e. They are really big. They have excellent. Morris's unofficial tabletop RPG talk is a fantastic podcast. I really love listening to it. And they have a huge and very rich community of people that are talking about D&D. It was actually how I found out about Daniel Kwan's blog post talking about the 1D&D virtual tabletop experience. So it is a really good community too. So my plan right now, when I'm thinking about where I'm engaging in various parts of the role-playing game community are to focus on this, blogs and my own RSS feed. I'm gonna be on Mastodon over at chirp.nworld.org. I've already been on Mastodon for a while and I kind of dive in. One nice thing about all of these different platforms is none of them are demanding your attention like the big commercial ones are. One of the main drives between all of these platforms, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it, all of those big ones that are run by these giant corporations that are trying to, the one thing that they want you to do is engage. That word engage and engagement, which means whatever they can put on there to make sure that you stay there and that you keep surfing through so that you will eat ads. That is their goal. These platforms do not have that goal. When you subscribe to RSS feeds, you get to decide which ones you're subscribed to, which ones you're not. Sometimes you'll find one that's particularly noisy where like you're just getting post after post after post and you're like, that's too much. Just unsubscribe from that one and then you're not getting as much information. Chirp, you know, the Mastodon, the way that Mastodon is working, there's no algorithm. It's giving it to you in date-based. It's giving it to you in, in order, which means, and if you only subscribe to a few people, you're only going to see so much stuff and you hit the end and then you get on with your life. You don't have to stay there. They have no incentive for you to stay there, which is great. Same thing with the, the Lemmy servers and even with NWorld. Once you've read the end of NWorld, once you've kind of covered all the forums that you're interested in reading, you go on with your life. They're not, their drive isn't to get you to stay there and stay engaged like YouTube and TikTok and Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and all these other big sites that are like, they just want to keep feeding you ads and they want to feed you ads every moment of your life, which means they want to keep you there. That's why like when you go to Twitter and you do the algorithmic view on Twitter, it never ends. You will always be there. You will never stop. Same with YouTube. You refresh the homepage, it's always there. It's always new videos. You'll just, you could just lose your whole life in there. So this is how I am thinking 
thinking about the different communities that I am engaging with in the RPG world, particularly in this way where we're looking at decentralized, non-commercial platforms that are designed to give us information and serve users rather than serve us to advertisers. So I'm very interested if you know of other communities that you spend a lot of time in. I didn't talk about things like Discord because Discord, again, doesn't really fit the model of these because Discord is a commercial company. I'm worried it's going to be in shitified soon. They seem to be moving in directions that are, so I'm not recommending. Discord is obviously very, very popular. I use it all the time. I love Discord, but it's not following these kinds of models. But where else do you go? What other communities are you connected to? Where else? How do you find blogs that you like? What blogs are not on my list that you're like, oh, Mike, I can't believe you're not following this particular blog? Tell me, tell me in the comments, send me an email, let me know about the different kind of communities that you're interested in. But I think that this is valuable for DMs. When we think about the value that the internet plays for DMs and GMs, it's our ability to get information from other DMs and GMs and learn from each other. It's so crucial. How do we learn from each other? How, what kind of information can we get? We're not going to agree with everybody. In fact, we might pe have people where you don't agree with them hardly at all, but every so often you get a nugget of information that really makes you think about it. And I really find that valuable. And so trying to capture that part of this community, super valuable to DMs, super valuable to GMs, but doing so in a way that isn't serving a platform whose main goal is to feed you advertisements and, and and increase their shareholder value. That's what we're really looking for. And that's what I think that these kind of communities do. One that I didn't mention on here, but is a big one, but it's kind of hard to figure out. Maybe somebody can put together a list of like the best ones are newsletters. Many of the blogs that are available in the RSS feeds also have newsletters. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter and get it as an email inbox, like you can Sly Flourish on the Sly Flourish newsletter, there's a link in the show notes where you can connect to the Sly Flourish newsletter. If you don't want to subscribe as a feed, you get it as an email every day. Email newsletters are also an excellent decentralized way for you to get information directly from the creator who is creating that newsletter. I love them. I, I actually, I think it would be a really cool idea to have a list of like, what are the top TTRPG newsletters that are out there? Maybe, I, I don't know if I'll take that on, but if somebody wants to take that on, that'd be really awesome. And I will link to it and talk about it. So let me know in the show notes, send me an email, however you want to communicate with me. What are some of the ways you communicate in the RPG community that you really think are super valuable? And what are your thoughts about it these days? I'm very interested to hear. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a post that asks patrons to bring any question about tabletop RPGs that they want to talk about. Every Friday morning, I get myself a nice coffee, I sit down at my desk, and I answer every single question that comes in on that Patreon post. Some of those questions that I think are really valuable for a wider community, I bring here to this show, and some even become articles or newsletters or videos in their own right. Let's take a look at the questions that we have today. Plate, Plate cheated, by the way. I want everybody to take note that Plate cheated. He put two questions. They put two questions in, but they are both pretty good questions. So I put both questions in the thing, but don't do that. Instead, post one question a month. Plate says, those that are separating themselves from 1D&D, which game do you think would be the most popular choice? Daggerheart, Pathfinder 2, Blades in the Dark, Fate, 13th Age, or Tales of the Valiant? I put this question in here because it's a trick question. I'm going to give it a trick answer. And the answer is, it doesn't matter that we don't have to worry about the popularity of any role-playing game. If you can find players that are willing to play the game, if you are the only players on the planet willing to play, it's still a successful role-playing game. One of the really things, I've talked about this before, I'm going to talk about it again. One of the things I adore about role-playing games is this resilience, this idea that even small 
very focused role-playing games where only a few people are interested in it, they are still successful if anybody is playing it. Iron Sworn doesn't even need other players. Iron Sworn, if you were the only player in the world playing Iron Sworn, Iron Sworn is still successful. So I don't think there is necessarily an advantage. And I have friends of mine that that disagree with me on this, and I can understand where the disagreement is coming from, but I think that we're we're thinking about things differently. The popularity of a role-playing game really doesn't matter that much. The only time it matters is, are you going to find a large community of people talking about it? Are you going to find that the publisher is continuing to put out new material for it? Are you able to easily find players who understand the game that you're trying to run and are eager to join you? Those are really the only issues. But a lot of times, even if it's a really archaic RPG, if you can sell it to four, three, four, five other people and say, hey, I found this really interesting role-playing game. It's got this really good idea. Let me tell you a little bit about this. And you tell them and they're like, yeah, we'll try that out. Like I have three different groups and I, I'm pretty sure all three groups would be willing to try any RPG if I said, hey, this is really interesting and I want to try it. All three groups would say like, yeah, we'll give it a shot. Now, maybe they're not going to like switch like, oh, no, we're never going to play D&D. And now we're going to play nothing but Honey Heist for the rest of our lives. Maybe then they're not going to be on it. But would they play Honey Heist one night? Absolutely. Would we get together for one uh, for a birthday party for somebody and try out an RPG that they want to try? Absolutely. It, the popularity in my mind really doesn't matter that much. And we know many RPGs where we're probably pretty sure not a lot of people are playing them, but they're cool RPGs and we like them anyway. And we can learn them and we can take ideas from them and bring them into our other role-playing games, which make them really with which makes them really successful and popular. So if you're unhappy with what Wizards of the Coast has been doing and you want to step away from D&D, first of all, stepping away from D&D doesn't necessarily mean stepping away from 5e which i've talked about before and you bring up tales of the valiant which is 5e so is level up advanced 5e i think there are multiple really good big powerful versions of 5e that we could switch to that we could run but then you, all the other games you bring up dagger is probably going to be very popular pathfinder 2 is already pretty popular blades in the dark very popular among the indie games fate has been around for a long time it's very popular 13th age i love i'm really looking forward to shadow of the weird wizard and i still love shadow of the demon lord these are all fantastic rpgs it really doesn't matter if they're popular or not. And I would, I would, as a, as, as a GM, don't worry about aiming towards the popular choice and don't worry about saying like, Oh, I'm really not hearing a lot of people talking about this. So I'm not going to pay attention to it. That doesn't matter if you like it. If your players like it, that's really all that matters. So don't get too hung up on popularity of RPGs. Cause it, unlike video games where it does matter because a company will just drop them. You don't have to worry about that. The, the synergy, the value of an RPG is not based on the total number of people that are playing it. The value of that RPG is whether or not it speaks to you and it speaks to your players when you're running it. plate. You get a second question, but this is it. And that is, and I actually started to talk about this. Now that we've seen the 3D VTT from Wizards of the Coast, what do you make of how their VTT will change or shape the future of the TTRPG industry? Will this push the community online for ease of play? Will theater of the mind be put to dust? Are you nervous by the implications or changes it may bring? No. Next question. I kid. So I, I, I spoke about this earlier in this show, so I'm only going to briefly kind of summarize that same idea just to, to focus on this. It is just a VTT. And as I think it will, it could possibly eat as much of the market as roll 28. I don't, I don't think because it's a VTT, it has a relatively limited use, which as, which is as a virtual tabletop. 
And we only need a virtual tabletop when we don't have a real tabletop. Now, again, I know some people will use a virtual tabletop in in-person play. I know that some of the demos that they ran at the VTT were a bunch of people sitting around computers. And there was a bunch of criticism of people saying, like, why are we sitting around a bunch of computers? Will it put Theater of the Mind to dust? No. You know why? Theater of the Mind doesn't cost anything and has an infinite budget. Right. I love one of the reasons why I love Theater of the Mind and I love games that that are kind of built around and support Theater of the Mind is because we have an unlimited special effects budget. You can have as many miniatures as you can imagine, and it costs you zero, right? That is really powerful. Even if you're doing an abstract map where you're still kind of showing positioning, you can put a sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper and a, and a, and a pencil you went and stole at the local dog track, and you can take that and you can draw circles for things and then describe what those are. And your descriptions can be incredibly vivid and incredibly like imaginative and just grab, grab people's attention and pull it in. You're never going to be able to defeat something like that. When a game has that kind of power in it, it doesn't matter if you have a really slick VTT. I guarantee you theater of the mind, describing something is easier than trying to engineer it in a VTT. It just is. Now, that doesn't mean VTTs aren't really good and popular and that people love them. They do. They really like those visualizations. They really like the moving tokens around on a map. That's all really great. But the VTT is just one of them. And they're, like as soon as it's limited to specific clients, I know they've talked about like support for phones and maybe support for tablets, but we know that's going to be a ways off. And until they crack something like that, until we see like a VTT that can really easily support a phone, and that's hard to do because you really need a lot of screen real estate for a good VTT. It's just, it's going to be another tool. So no, I'm not worried about it. And I'm not, and you know, maybe, maybe I'll worry about it a year from now or two years from now, but I'm not worried about it today because I got my own problems to worry about today. I got other things to worry about, like D&D Beyond. Victor G says, do you worry about game balance? Being a player since the 70s, I recall the idea in earlier editions of D&D that if your character could do something cool, it usually meant he could not do something else. Paladins could do lots of cool things, but they had to be LG. Today's game feels like the idea of game balance has gone out the window, but at the same time, I'm torn with cool ideas from my PCs and my group. For example, I love the ideas of stat perks. I haven't really looked at stat perks, but I don't want to give my 12th level party a boon with no bane. Am I just being a grognard? Yes, I kid. Of course. But yes, you are still being a grognard. And, but I'll tell you why. And not in a bad way, different way. D&D changed. And it changed, the, the general theme of D&D changed about halfway through second edition. And my in my research of this, it really happened around the time that the complete books came out in second edition. This was in late 80s, early 90s, I think. Yeah, right. I think it was like late 80s when suddenly there was like the complete fighter and it was a book of new options for fighters and it had things like dual wielding and it had things like offhand attacks and it had all this kind of stuff, new things, new. I think all this idea of skills and skill roles were inside this complete book. And I remember, I have a friend of mine who famously tells the story about the time he was sitting down at a D&D game. He had his fighter sitting there and a friend was had his fighter sitting down there and the friend was using complete fighter stuff. And it was like two different games. He's like, that guy's doing three times more stuff than I am. That guy's doing all kinds of stuff. And that shifted the feeling of the game from what I'm referring to as like a dark fantasy game to a high fantasy game. I'm probably not using terms that everyone's going to agree with, but it's sent or like a grim fantasy versus high fantasy. And to me, the kind of definition of the switch is in the, the darker, grimmer fantasy, the characters are basically normal people who happen to pick up a sword and decided that going down into a cave to go find loot is a, is a better risk to reward value than staying and becoming a farmer. 
but they're still normal people. And you could take that rope and you could go down and you could twist your ankle and starve to death and die. And that that was that style of game. Very low hit points, very few things you could do. And like you talk about, Victor, a lot of balance things like wizards had very powerful spells, but their level progression took much longer and they had very few hit points. And early on in their career, they were very, very weak. So there were these trade-offs that they had there. That was definitely a design, I think was a design of that, what I will refer to as old school style of game, which is that grim fantasy, challenging the players rather than challenging the characters. And, you know, all the, all the kinds of things that you see with the old school Renaissance. And then it was at that second edition time. And certainly then in third edition, now you've got feats. Now you've got skills. Your characters are these great big things. You have spellcasters that are able to cast cantrips all the time. And that certainly went in the third, fourth, fifth edition of what we see today. And that's high fantasy. So a lot of what we're seeing with the, the, the idea of, of, of balance, and balance is a tricky word too, because there's balance in a bunch of different ways. You're talking about sort of the balance of getting a feature over here at a detriment over here that if you're good at one thing you have to be bad at something else there's also balance between characters where oh the wizard is so much more powerful than the fighter there's a game balance issue because why would you ever want to play a fighter when a wizard is so much better i love fighters and I put play fighters all the time, so I don't really see that. And then there's balance of the game itself, the balance between the characters and the world. That idea that like, oh, the battle should run a certain way all the time. There's balance there. And there's lots of different little tricky bits with all these ideas of balance. But that real idea that you're hitting here is sort of that difference between sort of the, the, the dark fantasy and grim fantasy that existed in D&D from second edition and past to the high fantasy where the characters are heroes. And I talked about like, that idea that in the grim fantasy it was like any farmer could pick up a sword and become an adventurer and go down into a cave and try to get some treasure rather than, you know, go, go farm their whole lives in the high fantasy versions. Your characters are special in the world. 13th age is like an example where they really personify this, that in 13th age, it's like, what is your one unique thing? What makes your character stand out from everybody else in the world? And that shows like the character is unique. And that exists in, in third, fourth and fifth too, that the commoner, like the difference between a level one character and a commoner is extreme, right? Like look at a level one D&D fifth edition character and compare its stats to the stat of a commoner totally different and the idea is a level one character in DD, even though they're pretty they're pretty you know killable right that like a couple of wolves can take out a first level character that the the first level character is already a hero they've already often with their background they've also got a history and a past where they've done things look like the glooms the gloom stalker right or the you, or the, you know the, the the horizon walker you have some really fantastic backgrounds where like these people are really special and of course your stats are much higher even your hit points are higher the amount of damage you do your attacks everything is way higher at first level than than what you see from like a commoner and that's a factor of the new game so really i think what you're seeing here is kind of a difference between the theme of the adventures the theme of the game and it really to me like the line that you could draw was right around the time when like the complete book started to come out for second edition and from that point on the characters were heroes that were unique among the people of the world and before then the characters really weren't that different from the people of the world other than the fact that they picked up a, a sword or maybe read a spell book and could cast magic missile one time per day that was a very long answer but i hope that answer i hope that give you give you an answer to that question 
Tim S. says, One thing I really missed from the 4E monster manuals was when they would give you a sample encounter with each monster entry where you could, where you could build a good one with this monster. Do you have any resource where you can find something similar? If not, do you have any advice on what combos of monsters work well together? I'm hoping there are plenty of advice, plenty of this type of advice in Forge of Foes, so insert a plug for that here. Oh, thank you so much for opening up a, a, a plug for Forge of Foes. Not a great time to plug Forge of Foes because we're just finishing it up. It's going to be released to backers next Friday. I, we're, we're on schedule right now. We're doing a lot of work to get this thing ready, but we're, our plan is that we're going to have the first version of Forge of Foes, the first PDF, available to backers next Friday. And well, let's see, do I have it? Hey, why don't, we, why don't we take a little look? Now, this is the rough cut, so there's still things we're fixing in here. This is the current version of the layout, but I think it's got a table of contents. So, yeah, so like table of contents isn't fully filled out yet. Lots of things we still have to do. But since you brought it up... Let's see, we get this, there we go. So we wanted to look at monster combinations, right? What combinations of monsters work well together? You're gonna to see a lot of cool stuff in this, by the way. Reskinning monsters, spells for monsters, building engaging encounters, engaging environments. 15 engaging environments, the slip and slide. Building spell casting monsters, monsters in tiers of play. We need, we're filling that out. We got things to add to that. Combat encounter checklist, romancing monsters. Isn't that picture awesome? I love that. General use stat blocks. Look at that guy. Running monsters. Lazy tricks for running monsters. Lightning rods. Bosses and minions. I think this is one area where we have it, but I, we have two. So in Forge of Foes, we actually have two areas where you can see like this connection between monsters and the monsters that would, would show up there. So in this case, we have different monsters at different challenge ratings and what environments those monsters might be hanging out in and then what other monsters might be hanging out with them. So this is a good example. It goes all the way from first to 24th level. So first, it goes all the way from CR1 to CR24 for different encounters. So like if you're an archmage, what monsters might go work well with an archmage animated armor imps cambians any of the demons elementals and golems tells you right up front medusa who would be good with medusa basilisk giant constrictor snakes death dogs and you can you do it in reverse too you could be like which one of these monsters do i like and then what boss might fit well with them you know a wraith might have flame skulls specters and whites stuff like that but we actually have another one that we have in here too if i can find it we haven't even fully organized the pdf yet here it is we also have like monsters by adventure location. And in here we have different adventure locations at different challenge ratings and what kind of monsters are, are, are there. And in some cases we talk about like a mummy lord is entombed in a cold iron sarcophagus guarded by mummies and whites. So each of these has sort of an encounter in a specific area with the, like a main monster and then secondary monsters. A giant rat and the swarm of rats that travels with them are feeding on a dead body. You know, in the seedy city, city, city streets, city, city streets, seedy city streets. A mage commanding veterans is seeking something the characters seek as well. Volcanola, a fire giant with pet hellhounds, commands Azir to dig for them. So this is an example of where you're getting encounters, not just a monster and a location, but an encounter that you can drop into specific location types, deep caverns. We also made these encounter locations a little bit more unique than you you find in the standard monster books so that's a good way to go so those are the kinds of things you'll find in forge of foes but something else i'm going to recommend another product as well who i think did an outstanding job with this and one that you should definitely pick up and that is and i see peacock also has beat me to the punch and that's level up 
And that's the Level Up 5e Monstrous Menagerie. This was my favorite product of 2022. I love the Monstrous Menagerie. I use the monsters from this as a direct replacement for all of my Monster Manual monsters. They run really well. They're very well balanced. Paul Hughes developed them. Paul Hughes has been thinking about Monster Math more than anybody I know. Fantastic book and written by a fantastic dude. You can get the PDF. I, got, I bought the physical version because I like them as well. But one of the things that this has is every one of these monsters, we'll jump right to the Etten, for example. Every one of these monsters or certainly monster types has encounters that the Etten favors lonely places as wild hills and abandoned ruins CR 3 to 4 is an Etten and then CR 5 to 10 is two Ettens or an Etten with 1d6 orcs or an Etten with 1 to 2 ogres Etten with 1 to 4 death dogs so every monster that you find here in the monstrous menagerie has you know fairy encounters what kind of encounter and what kind of monsters are going to be in those encounters it also has I mean they, you know I've, I've already talked about how awesome how awesome this book is. But it also has lore for all of these monsters as well that you can roll on. So again, f legends and lore about, about fungi, you know, tells you based on the DC knowledge check that they do, Arcana or nature check, characters can learn the following, but then also says, what are some fungus encounters, right? And you have like two dead man's fingers and dead man's fingers with one to two ghosts and then treasure is like a flame tongue longsword. So it even includes treasure. So it is a really fantastic book that has those monster combinations. So for me, the answer to your question of how you get this kind of thing is Forge of Foes has two different ways that we're looking at it, but we're looking at it in kind of like big one sheet things. And then if you really want to have a monster book that is written the same way that you were talking about in the fourth edition days, we're talking about what kind of encounters you could find. The Monstrous Menagerie is, I think, the best monster book I have seen. It is a fantastic monster book, and I would definitely pick it up. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in role-playing games. I hope you found this show useful to, for you and your game and your interactions with the community. If you like this show and you want more stuff like this, please consider subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You'll get a weekly RPG-related email sent directly to your inbox every week, plus an Adventure Generator PDF. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to the City of Arches Sourcebook, Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, the Patreon Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, and a lot more and you can pick up any of my books including return of the lazy dungeon master the lazy dms workbook and the lazy dms companion and soon forge of foes will all be available on the sly flourish bookstore you can find links for all of that in the show notes thank you all so much have a great day and get out there and play a role-playing game